Hey everyone, I'm Walt, one of the Hierarch pastors, and I'm curious, how often do you think about your future? Not in a, I wonder what's for dinner kind of way, but a what is my life going to be like kind of way. Maybe you're more in the moment and you only think about it when you have to. Or maybe you're super future oriented, always looking ahead at what could be. The other week, I was taking a personality assessment test. I found that in professional ministry settings, we love these tests. Enneagram, Strength Finders, Myers-Briggs, Spiritual Pathways, DISC, Situational Leadership, and as many of those BuzzFeed, which Harry Potter character are you, type tests as possible. We eat them up. But that's besides the point. I was taking a test, and I was surprised by how many of the questions were future-oriented. How often do you think about the future? Do you prefer to think about what could be or, or what is? Would you rather read books by historians or futurists, and, and so on? Now, for me, I'm not particularly future-oriented. I tend to think about things right in front of me. So I answered accordingly, and then the last question was basically, are you sure you aren't thinking about the future? And I thought, well, shoot, I, I am now. Yeah, some of us are always looking ahead to tomorrow and beyond. Others of us take a, a little prompting to get there. How often we think about the future is one thing. But perhaps the more important question is, how do we feel about the future? What emotions does future casting conjure up for us? Generally speaking, does it get us excited, eager, hopeful? Or do we find ourselves anxious or unsettled and afraid? On one hand, there's a lot that we can't know about the future. We've all been surprised before in big ways and in small ways. There's so much that we can't predict or control as much as we might hope to. And for many of us, it's that inability to precisely plan our future or our family's future that generates stress. But on the other hand, most of what we forecast into the future is based on what's happening today. And there's plenty of things today that we might be excited about. Christmas is in the air, we're lining up our holiday plans, we've got our tickets to the Christmas concert locked in. We see some festive fun in our future and we're looking forward to those times of celebration and relaxation. Maybe longer term, you're a high schooler who's gonna be heading to college next fall, or you're engaged and planning a wedding, or you've got a grandkid on the way, there's reason to be hopeful for the future. And yet there's also plenty of things happening in our lives and in our world that make our outlook decidedly darker. There's a lot in our world right now that leaves little room for hope. The conflict and death in Gaza, rising epidemics of loneliness among men, or mental health crises among teens, the creep of AI, the specter of another divisive election cycle, concerns about climate change. All of us can point to things out there that give us pause and make us wonder if tomorrow or next year or the generation after us are going to be okay. We look ahead with apprehension. But as big as the external stuff is, sometimes our fear of the future comes from something close at hand. Recently, I spoke to a good friend whose father had just been diagnosed with early-stage Alzheimer's. It brought up a whole host of questions ranging from care and treatment to how he should be prioritizing time with him before things progressed. The future began to look a lot harder. Another friend has a, a young daughter diagnosed with a one-in-a-million disease that's stable for now but it's a ticking time bomb for something much worse. What's gonna happen there? Some of us are looking at our marriages and wondering if we'll become one of those statistics. For about two years, Jen and I were struggling, but we never really addressed it. We, we just kept our heads down, kept moving forward, even though the tension was steadily building. And then the pandemic hit. 
we couldn't keep moving and now we were stuck in our tiny apartment with a two-year-old, a dog, and all of our unresolved problems. It was not pretty. A lot of the feelings that came out were, were anger and frustration and hurt, but what ran through them all was fear. What if I don't have a partner who's really for me? What if we can never figure this stuff out? What if you aren't able or willing to change? What kind of future do we actually have? Others of us are dealing with financial uncertainties. A big bill just came due. The, the company is going through layoffs. You're having a hard time getting the hours you need. When we don't know how we will provide for tomorrow, today can get pretty scary. Whatever our case may be, concerns for our health, for our kids, for the environment, or the, the government, or the development of a more just society, whatever feels most pressing to us will impact how we face the future. What kind of world will we end up living in? That's a big question, and it cries out for a big response. And while it might not be the response we want, I'm excited to kick off our journey through the Gospel of Luke today, because what Luke tells us about Jesus and Jesus' impact on the world is the response that we need. Luke was a traveling companion to Paul and a leader in the early church. He would have been influenced by Mark's Gospel, which we studied together earlier this year, and was commissioned by the most excellent Theophilus to write an account of the life of Jesus that included the testimonies of many eyewitnesses. We're going to spend the next four months exploring this gospel all the way up to Easter because there are some striking parallels between our story today and the people Luke was writing to. Just like in our world now, Luke was writing to people in a time of political turmoil, unrest, and uncertainty. Many were probably Greek-speaking, upper-class Roman citizens. They were well-educated and well-resourced Christians who were seeking encouragement in their faith as they wrestled with the cost of following Jesus. Luke opens up his gospel by establishing the setting. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. In 63 BC, Rome took control of Judea. It was pretty prime real estate if you wanted to control the region and provide a big tax revenue to the empire. In 37 BC, Herod was appointed the king over Judea by the Romans, where he reigned until right around the birth of Jesus. It probably goes without saying that the Judeans opposed Rome's occupation. Some did so in silence waiting for God's Messiah to come and overthrow the Romans. Others acted through protest and sometimes violent uprising. These were quickly and brutally put down. But the oppression was more than just financial and political. There was a spiritual component too as well. Herod actively oppressed the spirits of the people. He constantly provoked and insulted their faith. Like when he had an eagle, the emblem of Rome put atop the gate of the holy Jewish temple. When a group of Judeans tore it down, Herod had them killed. He died right around the time that Jesus was born, but instead of things calming down, his death prompted others to rush in to claim his throne, which resulted in even further bloodshed. These were difficult and fearful times with little reason for hope. And it was during this time that Zechariah the priest entered the picture. In the midst of this cultural pain of Roman oppression, Luke introduces us to a very personal type of pain as well. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were childless, and they were elderly. In the ancient Near East, not having kids was economically and socially disastrous. Today we have some safety nets like 401ks and social security, but as many of us know, full-time care for aging adults is incredibly costly. The fear of running out of resources is very real, and all the more so in the ancient Near East. Luke gives us some interesting information about this couple. 
He tells us that both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Why is that important? Because it was common thought that if you didn't have kids, it was because you had messed up and God was punishing you. It was your own fault. But Luke is underscoring the fact that this was not the case. Zechariah and Elizabeth aren't childless because they're bad people who deserve to be punished. They were childish, childless because life is unfair. and The world is hard, filled with all kinds of pain and loss. They're a righteous couple who loved God and loved one another, but their future was bleak. They were in a literal kingdom of oppression under the Romans, but also under the strain of a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom of, of darkness and death and hopelessness. Many high rockers know the pain of childlessness and fertility challenges all too well. The pain of a dream, a life hoped for, that feels more and more out of reach. Even if childlessness isn't your story, I think all of us know the feeling of having some dream die or a vision of our life vanish, whether in an instant or over many years. Not because of any sin we may have committed, but because the world is hard and filled with all kinds of loss. And like Zechariah and Elizabeth, there may have been times where your future felt bleak. And maybe you're in such a time right now. But something interrupted the track that Zechariah was on. Zechariah was one of the priests who served at the temple. And periodically they would cast lots, basically rolling dice, to, to see who would enter the priestly sanctuary of the temple just outside the Holy of Holies where God's spirit dwelled. They, they came to burn incense to cover up the smell of burning animal sacrifices. But winning this was like winning the lottery. It was a once-in-a-lifetime deal if you were lucky. Zechariah gets lucky. His name is called and he enters. Already, this is a pretty amazing day for Zechariah, but then things get even more amazing. An angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. In an instant, Zechariah and Elizabeth's life has changed completely. What they had assumed was impossibility was going to become a reality. God had made a way. And now instead of a future filled with darkness, there was light and hope and, and joy. But that's not all. This wasn't just good news for them. The angel wasn't just announcing that there would be a child. And as incredible as that is, the angel was announcing that this child would be good news for everyone. John was going to help usher in a new kind of future. God's people were under the heel of the Romans and dispersed throughout the region. But John was going to help bring them back together. More than that, the angels announced, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, let's be honest about this for a moment. I bet for many of us, this announcement sits somewhere in the range of confusing to nice. Some parts feel a little random. Elijah, turning the hearts of parents to their children, what does that mean? Some parts we might, feel, might be more familiar with, like preparing the way for the Lord, very Christmassy. We might be tempted to gloss over this and, and go right to the good part, the part where Jesus arrives on the scene. But this angelic announcement 
sets the stage for, for everything else that happens in Luke's gospel. The angel is telling Zechariah that his son will be a key player in the story of the Jewish people, and really, the story of the world. John will be picking up on one of the biggest cliffhangers in history, the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. A few weeks ago in our sermon on the Holy Spirit and the church, you'll recall that God's people rebuilt the temple in the hopes that the Spirit of God will once again come down and fill it, just like the Spirit did before they were taken to exile. Only at that moment, that didn't happen. And now everyone was standing around looking at one another and wondering when God was going to come back. The, the book of Malachi captures this moment. And in it, God speaks to the people. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. And the book ends with God declaring, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. So the assignment is to be on the lookout for Elijah, one of the most famous prophets, and he will signal the return of the Lord. Sounds straightforward enough. But while it might be only a few pages back in your Bibles, the gap between Malachi and this moment in Luke is about 400 years. When I was a kid, I could barely wait a week when one of my favorite shows ended with a to-be-continued moment. I don't, I don't know how they did it back then. John was going to fit the mold of Elijah, which would signal that the Lord was going to return. So the people should get ready. And this return was going to be marked by two movements, two turns of the people's hearts. In the scriptures, when someone's heart is turned, it almost always means that it is turned away from things that lead to death and turned back towards God, back towards life. The first movement relates to the dynamics and dysfunction of family relationships. Luke tells us that parents' hearts will be turned towards their children. And Malachi 4 adds the inverse, that children's hearts will be turned towards their parents. At face value, that sounds great. Parents and children turning towards one another, a healing of relationships there. No more okay boomer or awkward texts, thank goodness. But as important as that is, I don't think we're just talking about family dynamics here. I think we're talking about something much bigger, something much grander. Without doing an even deeper dive into the biblical story, it's important to understand that one of the main vehicles of God's promises were families. Specific families that God blessed for the sake of blessing the world. However, in almost every instance, there were rifts between the families. Incredible pain and brokenness. Relationships that were supposed to bear witness to the power and goodness of God in the world, but struggled under the weight of sin and selfishness. Instead of being turned towards one another in love, they were turned away from each other in bitterness, anger, distrust, and fear. These families are representative of God's people, both then and now. Their call is our call. Their problems are our problems. But their hope is also our hope. The hope we hear now that one day God would turn their hearts towards one another, that God would bring healing and reconciliation, and that they would have a new future, one in which their relationships were a blessing to the world. I want you to consider your significant relationships for a moment. 
This could be with your parents, your spouse, your kids, your close friends, people from our church community. Are, are there instances where you feel like your hearts are turned away from one another? When your chosen family ends up just as problematic as your natural one? Where there was supposed to be love and care, blessing for the sake of blessing, but now there's division and enmity? Where the future feels bleak? Maybe even impossible. Maybe you find yourself even hoping that there is no future for those relationships. There may be a little reason for hope. But church, God is coming to do something new, to turn hearts back towards one another, to replace bitterness with forgiveness, anger with gentleness, despair with hope. God is making a way when a way seems impossible. God is taking a future that seems certain and creating a new way forward. Wow. The second movement is the turning of the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Zechariah lived in the time of Herod where the conventional wisdom for how to succeed at life was deeply flawed. Money and power were abused, the weak were oppressed, people groups were divided. That was what you had to do to get ahead, to ensure a good future for yourself. That was life in Herod's kingdom. But in Jesus, a new kingdom was coming. And the wisdom of his kingdom was unlike anything this world had ever seen. It would cause people to rethink everything. But in rethinking and relearning and releasing old wisdom, God's people would find the kind of life, the kind of future they would have never thought possible. Earlier, I asked how you felt about the future. Marcus Buckingham, who created the Strength Finders Test, said that we all fear the future. It doesn't matter if we're an Enneagram 9 or what our Myers-Briggs type is or if we're a Hufflepuff or a Slytherin. Fear of the future is one of the great human universals, which is why we invest so much in those who promise to tell us the future. Prophets, fortune tellers, economists, presidential candidates, potential marriage partners, and so on. We want to guarantee a better future for ourselves, even though so much in life is out of our control. But instead of reaching for a fix, God, the one who is ultimately in control, calls us to let go of our fear. Advent begins with these four words, do not be afraid. Yes, there is pain today, and yes, there will be pain tomorrow, but one day, everything will, be, everything will change. And that change is already beginning to unfold in the coming of Jesus. Some have called the theme of Luke's gospel the great reversal. Throughout its pages, Jesus is turning hearts from old ways to new things, old wisdom to new righteousness, an old kingdom to a new kingdom. It is the kind of reversal we all need, we all yearn for. It might even be hard to, to let down our guard enough to hope for that kind of future. But that's why God looks at us and knows everything about us, everything about our circumstances, and is able to say to us, do not be afraid. Zechariah's son, John, was coming to help prepare people for the start of this great reversal to receive the Lord when he arrived. I'm struck by the fact that Zechariah's moment with God in the temple was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And yet for us, we are able to approach God any time that we need. Zechariah had strict limits for when he could access God. But as Pastor Dave reminded us last week, 
When we look to the end of Luke's gospel, we see something different. That Jesus laid down his life on the cross. The temple curtain that was a barrier between people and God was torn in two. Now, God has come near to us so that we are able to come to God at any time we need. Jesus isn't just promising us a better future. Jesus is inviting us into a better today. We can let go of our fear of the future and take hold of hope. Christ has come and Christ will come again. We are not alone. We do not have to be afraid and we can be assured that one day Jesus will come to make all things new. So friends, let's begin this Advent season by preparing our hearts to receive more of this hope. The speed of life is probably starting to pick up for many of us. Already we're being blasted with advertisements and holiday plans and the hecticness of the end of the year. Some of it is really fun and meaningful. A lot of it is distracting and caters to our worst impulses. So I'd like to offer us some space now, right here, to bring our hopes and yearnings to God, to let go of fear and take hold of hope. I would like for us to take three minutes in silence together. For some of you, this feels like Christmas come early. For some of us, it's like coal in our stocking. I get it. But in a world that constantly churns out fear-inducing noise, quieting ourselves and reminding ourselves of God's promises is one of the best ways to fight fear. Is there an area in your life where you feel hopeless right now, where you can't see a way through? Is, is there a space where you need to, Jesus to create a, a great reversal in your life, in your family, in your community. I want you to take this time to offer these fears to God. You can use the, the hands down, hands up prayer to physically enact letting go of fear and taking hold of hope. Or you could use a breath prayer, such as inhale, do not be afraid, <sighs> exhale. God is with me. Brothers and sisters, Christ has come. So let's enjoy God's presence together now.